0: So is it a normal Tuesday or are we going to have a fun day today I mean surprises are always our favorite isn't it so today I was looking at the news and it's got to be and I can't be the only one that sees this this is a an extremely strange July it's extremely strange we have hearings that are not benefiting anyone as the hearings are whitewashes, basically. No one's doing their job. On the other hand, nations around us are strategizing and even discussing changing of borders. And so I thought it was important that we take a look at a nation uh, that went through that. Uh, I have written about it before years ago when I was introducing everyone to Peter Strock. And in there, I had mentioned that Peter Strzok's father, Peter Strzok Sr., and Barack Hussein Obama's alleged mother, Stanley Ann Dunham, were responsible for the regime change in Iran. But post that, they were also responsible for the fall of Upper Volta and the rise of Burkina Faso. So I think it's important that we take a look at how that became, though, The news, like I said, is strange, very strange. Do you guys remember that video with the kid roaming around or something like that? Well, I think the mother attempted to say that she was kidnapped and that's why her kid, you know, was roaming around. I think it's really important that we watch how this unfolded. Starting with um, two days ago, where law and crime did a video on her bizarre disappearance for those of you that aren't familiar so let's start from the beginning here
1: for alabama launched a massive search for carly russell after she was reported missing
2: what we can't say is that we've been unable to verify most of carly's initial statement made to investigators
1: police say they have no reason to believe there's a threat to the public and there appear to be questions about Russell's story after her phone reveals searches for a movie about an abduction.
2: And I, I do think it's, it's highly, highly unusual to uh, uh, the day that, uh, that, that someone gets kidnapped, that uh, several seven hours, uh, eight hours before that, that they're uh, searching the internet, Googling uh, the movie Taken about an abduction. I-
1: Thanks for joining us here on Law & Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. Police in Hoover say they're still trying to find out what happened to Carly Russell and it appears she may have some explaining to do. Last Thursday night, Russell called 911 to report a toddler walking on the interstate. Police said last week, Russell called her family to tell them about the child, but then lost contact with her, although the phone line remained open and they could hear her screaming. Officers say they found some of Russell's belongings near her car, but no sign of her or the toddler. Then two days later, Police said Russell returned home since that time. They say they've only been able to speak with her once. Chief Nick Durza spoke about what Carly Russell told detectives.
2: Detectives obtained surveillance footage of Carly walking down the sidewalk alone prior to arrival at her residence. She was conscious and speaking with paramedics when she was transported to UAB. Detectives were able to obtain a brief statement from her prior to being treated and released. During the statement, she told detectives that while traveling down the interstate, she saw a baby walking down the side of the road and called 911. She started when she got out of her vehicle to check on the child, a man came out of the trees and mumbled that he was checking on the baby. She claimed that the man then picked her up and she screamed. She stated he then made her go over a fence. She claims he then forced her into a car and the next thing she remembers is being in the trailer of an 18-wheeler. She stated that the male was with a female, however, she never saw the female, only hearing her voice. She also told detectives she could hear a baby crying. She told detectives the male had orange hair with a big bald spot on the back. She said she was able to escape the 18-wheeler and fled on foot, only to be captured again, and then was put in a car. She claimed she was then blindfolded, but was not tied up because the captors said they did not want to leave impressions on her wrists. She said that they took her into a house And made her get undressed she believes they took pictures of her but she does not remember them having any physical or sexual contact she stated the next day she woke up and was fed cheese crackers by the female she said the woman also played with her hair but could not remember anything else at some point she was put back in a vehicle she claims was able to escape while it was in the west hoover area she told detectives she ran through lots of woods until she came out near her residence. During this interview, detectives noted that Carly had a small injury to her lip and she claimed that her head was hurting. She also had a tear in her shirt. Detectives also noted that she had $107 cash in her right sock. Out of respect for Carly and her family, detectives did not press for additional information in this interview.
1: But that left a lot of questions. Where was Carly Russell during those 49 hours or so? What happened to her? This is what police say they have learned in the investigation so far.
2: Through the public interest, and in some cases, public fear that this story has generated, we owe it to our citizens to tell them the facts that we have uncovered. So I will give you the facts that we know today. On July 13th, at approximately 8.20 PM, Carly left work from a business at the summit. Surveillance video from her place of employment shows Carly concealed a dark-colored bathrobe, a roll of toilet paper, and other items belonging to the business prior to her departure. She ordered food from Tzatziki's at the Colonnade and traveled there. She then traveled to Target on 280, where she purchased some granola bars and Cheez-Its. From there, she remained in the parking lot at that shopping center until 9.21 p.m. when she drove to I-459. Carly communicated on her cell phone with individuals known to her while in her path of travel up to the point of calling 911 at 9.34 p.m.
1: Here's the 911 call made by Carly Russell. Hi,
3: I am on Interstate 459 and there is a kid just walking by their cell. Oh, my, oh, my, where, where am I? Um, I'm right next to the exit, exit 10 by the cover net, like to get off by the cover Okay, here so before the exit? Yes. Okay, and were you, you headed southbound or northbound? Okay, okay towards Tuscaloosa uh-huh. or toward 280? Toward Tuscaloosa. Okay, and was the child on the left or right side? On the right side. Were they walking northbound or southbound? Um, they're walking towards Tuscaloosa. I'm walking southbound? How old do they look? Um, like a toddler, like maybe like three or four. Did you pull over with them or are you still with them? Yes. Okay, you're, are you with the child right now? No, I'm not, I didn't get out of the car. I'm just, I, I can see them though. Can you, do you mind staying and keeping an eye on them until we get there? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Okay, what kind of car are you in? I'm in a red red Is it a sedan or SUV? SUV. I mean, it's a a sedan. Sorry. Can you put your hazards on for me? Yeah, they're on. Okay. Did you talk to the child at all or did you say anything to them? No. Okay. No. Do they look like they're injured? No, they don't. Are they white like aesthetic or Asian? They're white. Okay. Is it male or female? i think it's a boy a little boy right now okay so is he wearing clothes yes okay what is he wearing um it's a white t-shirt it doesn't look like he has any pants on it looks like a diaper and you don't see any cars anywhere no no cars anywhere okay all right what's your name My name
1: is Carly Russell. Police are clearly skeptical when it comes to the 911 call and Russell's story.
2: Data from Carly's phone, including her Life 360 app, shows that she traveled approximately 600 yards in her vehicle while she was on the phone with 911 stating that she was following a child. 600 yards, that is six football fields straight, 600 yards.
1: Chief Nick Durzis explained what officers found near Russell's car.
2: Her purse was located in the front seat of her vehicle with her Apple uh, watch in the purse. The food she ordered for Tzatziki's was also in the car. The items she purchased from Target, as well as the items taken from her place of employment were not in the vehicle, nor were they located anywhere around the scene.
1: Chief Derzis said detectives want to speak with Russell again but they need to be careful because of any trauma she may have endured. He said since speaking to her following her return home, the Secret Service has uncovered more information from Russell's cell phone.
2: Part of what data includes several internet searches and the days leading up to her disappearance that I think are very relevant to this case. On July 11th at 7.30 a.m. the term do you have to pay for an Amber Alert was searched. On July 13th, at 1.03 a.m., the day of her disappearance, the term, how to take money from a register without being caught, was searched. On July 13th, at 2.13 a.m., the day of her disappearance, the term, Birmingham Bus Station, was searched. On July 13th, 2.35 a.m., A search for a one-way bus ticket from Birmingham to Nashville was conducted with a departure date of July 13th. On July 13th at 12.10 p.m., a search for the movie Taken, a film about a production, was conducted. There were two searches related to Amber Alerts on a computer at Carly's place of employment, including one regarding the maximum age of an Amber Alert. There were other searches on Carly's phone that appeared to shed some light on her mindset, but out of respect for her privacy, we will not be releasing the content of those searches at this time.
1: Those internet searches are clearly concerning to police,
2: and I, I do think it's it's highly highly unusual to uh, uh, the day that uh, that that someone gets kidnapped that uh, several seven hours or eight hours before that that they're uh, searching the internet, Googling uh, the movie Taken about an abduction. I I find that very, uh, very strange, yes.
1: Meanwhile, the mayor of Hoover spoke about how startling and terrifying Russell's disappearance was for the community.
2: And it
4: sent fear and pandemonium, not just through our city, but uh, the entire state and the nation as well. The media quickly joined us to get the word out about Carly, our community, sprung into action and they organized search parties, arranged prayer vigils, and they took other steps that I'm not even aware of to help in this situation. The Hoover Police Department quickly rallied multiple partner agencies stopping at nothing to find Carly.
1: You can imagine the relief for Carly Russell's family, the relief that they felt along with members of the community and law enforcement when she returned home. A possible abduction would create fear that someone in the community could randomly be targeting women. Police are vowing to get to the bottom of what happened last week.
2: This investigation is not over. We're still working this case, and we work in this case until we uncover every piece of evidence that helps us account for the 49 hours that Carly Russell was missing.
1: Chief Derzis says Russell's family has been cooperative and that they have passed along any tips that they have received. For Law and Crime, I'm Anjanette Levy.
0: Wow. So here's the thing that stuck out to me. So we'll find out now how this transpires, that it was a hoax. But here's the thing. He kept saying that Secret Service discovered. Now, forgive me if I am wrong, but the primary role of United States Secret Service is to protect the president, vice president, and their families, and other high-level government officials. They are also responsible for investigating and preventing financial crimes like counterfeit, fraud, but they do assist in kidnapping cases involving protected individuals, okay? Now, their main focus is protective duties and financial crimes. So is this person, this Carly Russell, a protected individual? I'm a little bit confused. I hope that other people are... (laughs) feeling the same way when they heard it because it was um kind of startling you know to 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 just realize that hey uh this is a little bit strange that secret service has been tapped for this kidnapping now here is what her attorney had to say and this gets really strange
5: was elijah blanchard his 19 year old daughter ania blanchard was kidnapped and murdered and October of 2019 in Alabama. His ex-wife, Angela Harris, and his mother led the search for Carly Russell. And Amisha Cross, a serious XM political commentator who has been following the story closely. Thanks to both of you for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Elijah, let me start with you. How did you feel when you heard today's news making it official?
6: Um, I felt disrespected. Um, It's well the matter as serious as this um, is, it just really brings a lot of awareness to you know scams I mean people have gone through things like this like such as my family we've you know suffered weeks after weeks looking for our child only to find out that she was she was murdered and she was thrown in in the in, a, in a, the wilderness pretty much um to hear somebody who could actually put someone through that, um, it really just makes me feel disgusted and I feel really disrespected because as a father, losing a child, baby girl, and you know, once you receive that, I can never forget October 24th, uh, 2019, that's just the day I never forget receiving a phone call to tell you that your daughter's missing or she didn't make it home the prior night. I immediately knew something was wrong with, with my child. Yeah. So I just feel like it's certain things that you don't play with. And, and this is just a situation where it makes, it just makes me sick in my stomach to know that someone could actually pull something off like this and, and just, you know, expect, just everybody say, okay, it's fine. No, it's not fine because she, it's almost like pouring salt on the wound. Um, I mean, it brought a lot of memories up. It brought a lot of heartache out. It brought, you know, my family back in a, in a public view um, because we went through this. And it's, it's something that no parent wants to go through. And for her to put the law enforcement, the first, first responders through something similar like that, it's just very, it's very disturbing.
5: And I'll bet that your daughter's disappearance didn't get a fraction of the attention that this got, did it?
6: it did get the fraction but um initially no um you know of course when when Anaya went missing it was more of a 24 hour wait you know for you know 24 to 40 hours and we mostly did most of the media coverage at up front um yeah. i do send my gratitude for the auburn police department for their efforts and all the you know the first responders that came out in the media and uh, and all the, you know, the students in Auburn, but no, nothing to this magnitude initially.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at gorgeous pictures of Anaya uh, there on our, uh, on our screen. Um, Amisha, let me ask you bigger picture, uh, what this means. I mean, you know, this is something that the police certainly indicated was likely last week. Uh, Now it's official. Looking at it from a sort of macro perspective, what does it mean to you?
7: First off, my, my heart goes out to Mr. Blanchard and all of the families who have legitimately lost their, their children, their loved ones to kidnapping and other abuses. But on the larger scale, I think that this is extremely frustrating. It's frustrating being a member of the black community and knowing that there are thousands of young girls and young women who go missing every day and they don't get a fraction of the news coverage. Um, they don't get a fraction of the level of resources that was devoted to this case that on the outset, at least in my mind, looked like a hoax. Um, there are just a lot of inconsistencies. And I think that the the Hoover Police Department probably knew it was as well. But as you know, and your viewers probably know, uh, once you amplify to getting the FBI involved and federal investigators as well, the, the level of attention is a lot higher, but also it all of a sudden leaves your jurisdiction. So there were a lot of things that the Hoover police could not say publicly mm-hmm. until it became clearly apparent that, hey, all of these things have been found, um, we've done all the research and now here we are, um, this woman is clearly not being factual. And I think that, for those who have lost their loved ones in this way before, um, which is a lot of people. It becomes really yeah. frustrating to watch so much, not only media attention, but resources, but also recognition that someone could even create this type of a host. Yeah, and acknowledging that she isn't the first one. Um, this has happened before right. in certain instances, but it, it's just really frustrating to watch because you know of the hurt that people have, oh. like Mr. Blanchard, you yep. know of the people who donated the $63,000 to Crime Stoppers to find this woman when there was no crime that was ever that was ever let, initiated or created to begin with you. outside of in her own mind. That part let, is the most frustrating. Let
5: me ask, thank you for watching. Go to
0: newsnationnow.com to find NewsNation. That, you guys, was one portion. But what will happen next is the question. And morning in America has started having that discussion about an hour ago, and it was quite interesting to see, because it seems like this was a failed attempt for something. Could it have been someone seeking attention? Maybe. But it got a lot of national attention, and the question is, why give it more legs? There's a reason for it
8: attention when it was believed she was missing in Alabama, now admits she lied. The 25-year-old woman's disappearance on July 13th, sparking a costly search. The police chief there read a statement from Russell's attorney who has now admitted her story about being abducted and escaping captors was all a hoax.
2: My client apologizes for her actions to this community. The volunteers who were searching for her To the hoover police department and other agencies as well as to her friends and family we ask for your prayers for carly as she addresses her issues and attempts to move forward understanding that she made a mistake in this matter
8: a big mistake Uh, russell admitted to never leaving the area and that she acted alone Her attorney will meet with police today. Authorities are considering potential criminal charges. News Nation Law and Justice contributor and retired FBI agent Jennifer Coffin Daffer is with us. Good morning to you, Jennifer. I know uh, she lied clearly, but now what?
9: Well, now what is she's going to face charges. I feel very confident of that. There were some clues actually given in the press conference, including them speaking about adding up the amount of money that was spent searching for her by local state and federal authorities
8: you can expect charges this week i would believe what kind of charges especially in light of the fact that she's now made a confession an admission that this was a hoax
9: i think it will be false statement charges i think at maximum she will face a very short period uh in jail or in prison uh if it's over 12 months it would be prison if not she could stay in a local jail uh I don't think it will be you know that uh horrific in terms of the amount of time she would be facing but certainly she has to face charges because they need to deter this sort of action in the future and then secondarily
8: she's done something against the law that cost uh taxpayers a lot of money Police are set to meet with her attorney today. Uh, Do you believe they'll ever make public where she was while she was in hiding for those uh, hours that she was missing or believed to be missing? it's possible i think law
9: enforcement could track it and figure it out honestly i just don't know how much more resources they're going to put into this Uh, i think it was also a very big mistake that carly didn't come out and read the statement herself Mm. i understand she might not wanted to you know would not want to face media interviewing
8: but she certainly should have said it herself i think that would have helped it's so emotional because you see you seen her parents do local and national television interviews and they were convinced that she was fighting for her life they said Um, crime stoppers collected some donations from the public in the quest for searching for her there were two large donations given back uh, but the smaller donations police are saying won't be returned until the investigation is complete but she confessed so is this typical No,
9: I think those need to be returned quickly. However, the problem is, I think, with just administrative policy with Crime Stoppers until an investigation is concluded, they're not going to return them. But I think those funds will be returned. I think it was wonderful uh, the outpouring of uh, concern of money, of time by local citizenry. And it's just such a slap in the face that this ended up being a colossal hoax.
8: Yes, it was a uh, crying wolf by a woman who again jeopardizes the case of others who legitimately uh, are missing and their families are still looking for answers. I just want to ask you, since we had you, uh, the Idaho student murders, Brian Koberger's name, back in the news again this week because he had until the end of Monday to submit an alibi. Do we know where that stands? Do you know if we'll get any details as far as that case goes?
9: Well, we're not seeing that any alibi was submitted, although I will say The website where we can publicly glean this information has been a little bit sketchy in terms of going on and not being able to find the information uh the freedom of information act requests seem to be working but in other words it's kind of delayed in terms of seeing but what we can see now there was no alibi submitted and that's very significant i think uh from the standpoint
8: that indeed he didn't have one Jennifer Coffin Daffer, thank you as always. We'll see you soon. Thank you for watching. Go to newsnationnow.com to find News Nation on your television.
0: So where's the concern here? So we have a woman that has admitted to hoaxing her kidnapping. Secret Service was involved. Okay, maybe it could have been like telecoms, crime, something. But on the other hand, this happened in Alabama, and now... They're going to seek punitive damages against a woman, which is warranted, right? If proven so, if proven so. But here is where this may tie in. I'm going to show you a video. Hold on, let me. Of a deceased man. Now he's deceased. Let's take a look. This is Barack Hussein Obama's chef.
10: Oh Respect the food!
11: Sir, yes sir.
6: Salt the water, bitch.
4: Get the pasta in there. <sighs> uh, uh. Oh shit. Oh, this is bad.
11: <laughs> Get the pasta in. Add some pasta water. What? Where the hell you get that? I always have pasta water. Add some parsley. Add some salt. Pepper.
6: Bon appetito, bitch. You got to work for it, bitch.
0: All righty. Well, that was a president chef. Now, the question that people should be asking themselves is what's going on? We've had a lot of White House chefs go to drowning. Stories have been changing. And it sounds really interesting, doesn't it? So we have one person hoax kidnapping, and then another, someone's dead. Totally reminded me of Timothy Cunningham too. Um, And you're going to say, well, okay, the guy was paddle boarding and in an eight-foot deep pond or lake because it was really big, drowned. Even though he was an avid avid swimmer, he was... (laughs) I think he was like even timing himself. I saw something like that floating on the internet, which by the way, speaking of the internet, usually those videos are put together by, uh, you know, Carly bone, the one that cackles Guys, She was banned from Twitter yesterday. It's insane because you know, she's, she's pretty much one of the very few accounts that posts things about president Trump. It's, it's a little bit bizarre if you ask me, but, The censorship is getting out of control. And the question is, you know, we thought it was getting better. Now, that's the other thing. What kind of censorship or stymieing will we see in regards to the investigation about Barack Hussein Obama's chef who died near his estate? Or was it on his estate? That's uh that's a pretty big deal because are we going to have investigations on the property? Are we going to, you know, have like CSI there? It's a little bit weird. Here's, here's the first reporting coming out of Boston. Just watch this reporting here. This is, this is interesting. Hold on.
4: Is
12: of
13: the Obama family chef who died on Martha's vineyard. His body was found near a pond near the Obama home after a paddleboarding trip. All right, David Wade, back in studio tracking details that are still coming into our newsroom, David.
14: Yeah, Chris, the Obama family says they're grieving tonight the loss of Tafari Campbell. On Sunday, Martha's Vineyard police say they got a call about a man who went under the water in Edgartown's Great Pond. Another paddleboarder actually saw it unfold but was unable to get to him. State police say emergency crews spent hours searching for Campbell but sadly recovered his body this morning. The Virginia man worked at the White House as a sous chef and in this official video was seen working on brewing an official beer for 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, President Obama offered Campbell a job to work for his family when his he was leaving the White House and Campbell took it. In a statement tonight, President Obama said, Tafari was a beloved part of our family. When we first met him, he was a talented sous chef at the White House, creative and passionate about food and its ability to bring people together. In the years that followed, we got to know him as a warm, fun, extraordinarily kind person who made all of our lives a little bit brighter. By the way, the Obamas were not at the home at the time. Tafari Campbell was married with twin boys. The investigation into his death continues. Chris. All right, David.
0: I'm sorry. That's really curious, especially the way they reported it is curious. Uh, Is it just me? The way it was reported. But now there's no paddleboarder, or is there? Someone saw him go under, but no one spoke about it. It's a little bit... um, curious here's what the morning news have to say hold on and this is coming from cbs this morning okay here's what they have to say in regards to that investigation
2: we are learning about a tragic story involving former president obama's personal chef the body of tafari campbell was found yesterday in a pond near the obama's martha's vineyard estate after police were alerted sunday about a man struggling in the water Obamas say Campbell's drowning death has left them brokenhearted. Scott McFarland has more.
15: Possible drowning. Massachusetts State Police say divers found the 45-year-old yesterday morning after an hours-long search. Police had been called to the Obama residence Sunday night after someone had reported a possible drowning in a nearby pond. But as far as we know, they're currently in the water. The body of a man was found about 100 feet from the shore in roughly 8 feet of water. He was later identified as former White House sous chef Tafari Campbell. Authorities said the Obama family was not staying at that home during the accident.
6: only thing you have left to do is just put the labels on it and pop the top.
15: Campbell could be seen here in a White House video during the Obama administration making homemade beer for the president. In a statement, the Obamas said they first met Campbell during his time working at the White House. They say they then asked him to stay on with the family after the president left office. The Obamas added that they were brokenhearted over the loss of someone they described as, quote, a beloved part of our family. Police say Campbell was visiting Martha's Vineyard at the time of the accident, but it's not yet clear whether he was staying at the Obamas' home. For CBS Mornings, I'm Scott McFarlane.
0: So no one knows if he lived there. I mean, that would be the first question, right? Is he a live-in chef? Where is his twin boys? You know, if that's the case, it's quite fascinating. Think. There are parallels to this, and I think this is where we're going to see it. So having said that, we're going to shift gears because we need to talk just a little bit about Ukraine before we head into Burkina Faso, which should be coming into focus very soon, too. So I'll see you guys in just a bit. You can never go wrong with some prodigy. So before we get into a little bit of foreign, you know, history and what has been done and not done in the past, I thought I would bring something to your attention. Now, we don't talk about a lot of states and Maine is one of them. It's quite important. But you know what's interesting that you don't hear anyone talk about? that Governor Janet Mills in Maine today vetoed an indirect initiative that would prohibit election spending by foreign governments. So basically this bill is to disallow foreign governments to lobby and influence our elections. She said that the language of the initiative was too broad and could have other potential impacts. And that while she strongly supports and shares the desire to find ways to prevent foreign influence in our elections, The language of this bill is too broad and would likely result in unintended consequences of effectively silencing legitimate voices, including Maine-based businesses in debates that would impact their interests. What? So the corporations that are global should be allowed to be able to invest and influence our elections, according to Janet Mills, because they have subsidiaries, I guess, or work with businesses there. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard someone say in a nation that claims to be a free nation without influence. Now, the, legislator, the legislature sorry, is voting uh, today, actually, whether to override the governor's veto of the foreign spending initiative. And if the legislature does not override the initiative. It'll go to the voters in November. (laughs) And the votes are rigged. So (laughs) there we go. It is the most bizarre thing I have seen to date. Don't fund other government elections and don't let other governments invest in ours. I think it's pretty straightforward um, as a concept. It's a really strange July. It's almost as if this is being done on purpose it's getting very stupid very very stupid and um in another side item i wanted us to kind of visit a very old video of bernie sanders from 1994 talking about Monsanto. now i want to play this one bernie doesn't look like he's aged at all since 1994 that's weird two Listen carefully to what he says.
4: Mr. Chairman, I move to strike the last word and ask unanimous consent to revise and consent. Without objection, so ordered. Mr. Chairman, there is an issue of enormous consequence that I fear has not gotten the kind of discussion and attention that it needs from this body. And that has to do with the introduction of RBGH, Monsanto's bovine growth hormone, Uh, into the marketplace and the impact that it is going to have on family farming, on animal health and perhaps on human health. Also I must tell you that I am extremely concerned about the role that the Food and Drug Administration has played in this entire process. And among many other concerns that I have is that at least three high-ranking members in the Food and Dr- Drug Administration formerly were employed by the Monsanto Corporation, and we believe may have played an important role in the whole approval process. Mr. Chairman, the simple fact of the matter is, is that at a time when we already have a milk surplus in the United States, we do not need bovine growth hormone which is increasing milk production and in increasing the surplus. The fact of the matter is that the Office of Management and Budget has estimated that because of the use of BST, there will be an increase in the federal deficit by $500 million over the next five years. Why do we need a synthetic hormone to increase milk production when we already have a milk surplus. Second of all, the facts are very clear that BST makes cows sick. It significantly increases the rate of mastitis in cows. With increased mastitis in cows, farmers are obliged to use more antibiotics. Why, in fact, would the American people want to consume milk from sicker cows than is presently the case. The Food and Drug Administration has said that antibiotics will control the problem and that it is, quote unquote, a manageable risk. But why do we need any risk at all when we already have a surplus of milk on the market? Mr. Chairman, In my state of Vermont, over the last 20 years, we have lost many, many family farms, and that's true all over this country. And the reason that we are losing family farms is because the milk surplus is driving milk prices down, and farmers, in many instances, are receiving 50 percent of the income that they did 15 years ago, and they cannot survive on this income. For those of us who are concerned about the preservation of the family farm it seems to me we must address this issue. And it is incomprehensible to me that in a time we hear so much discussion about the deficit that we are not addressing this issue. At a time when consumers are more and more concerned about the quality and the purity of the food that they are ingesting, it seems to me that when scientists have concerns about the BST residue that will remain in the finished product, the milk that we drink, it is an issue that we must address. Mr. Chairman, Monsanto is a multi-billion dollar corporation. They have spent $300 million on the development of this product. It seems to me that it would be appropriate for the United States Congress to begin to stand up for family farmers all over this country who have enormous, have enormous concern about the impact of this development on their future. It seems to me imperative that the Congress stand up for consumers who are saying we want a pure product. We do not want cows to be injected with a synthetic hormone which makes them sicker so that Monsanto can make more money. Mr. Chairman, I have been asked to withdraw the amendment. Which I presented today, and I will do so. I intend next week, however, to introduce a major piece of legislation which deals with the labeling issue that the FDA has done such a terrible job on. The labeling issue, which says that consumers in America have the right to know whether the dairy product they're consuming comes from cows injected with B.S.D. or whether it does not. Mr. Chairman, the I would time hope has expired. I would ask for 30 seconds. Uh, yeah.
2: Mr. Chairman, I move to strike Jones the last. I will ask w-
4: unanimous consent for 30 additional seconds. Is there objection? Jones recognizes the Mr. Chairman, additional I seconds. would hope that the Chairman of the Committee will work with me in allowing more debate, more exploration of this terribly important issue that has not gotten the attention that it deserves. And I would hope that I will be able to work. With Chairman Durbin further on this issue.
0: Monsanto has been a problem for a very long time. And Bernie spoke almost 30 years ago, right? It's a little bit less than 30 years ago. That is what he said about our food. And where are we today, 30 years later? We now have almond milk and oat milk you know, because that's milk. It's not dairy, right? We have a lot of soy milk. And if you remember, we were exporting milk from the U.S., selling it to Canada and then buying it back at a premium. Remember that example? And now we have Monsanto demanding that there are federal blanket laws in regards to labeling your meat. How many of you buy meat at Walmart? They're not obliged to tell you if it's lab-grown meat or if it's real. How do you know it's real beef? See, that's the key here. They don't even want you knowing what you're eating. And that's a big problem. And this is why President Trump helped the farmers too. I thought I'd bring it to your attention because that's gonna be a thing of discussion in August by many. Now, let's move to Burkina Faso. If you remember, that's where Ilhan Omar was when she got a divorce. And it was signed there. Her divorce was signed there. But I'm going to show you a video where someone is kind of just talking about the capital, uh, Ouagadougou, and tells you about the sites that you should see before we delve into the tragedies that happened within that nation and how quickly it changed its name. Here we go.
10: Hello it is Plurus. thanks for joining us again and welcome back to another informative and exciting video on our YouTube channel. If you are joining us for the first time, we want to thank you, we appreciate your time. Some time ago we made a beautiful video about the country of Burkina Faso. But today we want to zoom down to look into the capital city of this amazing African country. We shall also explore in details why the country's name was changed by the former president Thomas Sankara. Also, we shall look into some very best places to visit in Ouagadougou. Our main focus will be talking about the history of Ouagadougou and why this city has little confirmation in terms of their contribution in the transformation of the African continent. So without any much delay, we shall just dive straight into it. For those of you who don't know, Ouagadougou is the capital and the largest city of Burkina Faso. The Mossi people settled Ouagadougou in around the 15th century. During this period, the Mossi expanded their territorial reach through the region south of the Niger River. By the 15th and the 16th century, Wagadugu was the most powerful Mossi kingdom. During this proximity, in terms of its location around the White Volta River, Wagadougou was a vital location for agriculture. As of 2003, based on figures. An estimated over 1 million people resided in Ouagadougou. Per Mosi oral history, the location was originally called the Wonga Zebra Soba, which is a kumbem, the kumbe, tenga. This actually means the name honored the chief zebra of the Soba village. Mende speaking traders changed the name, using Oga for Woga and also Dugu for the village. By the 18th and the 19th century, Slave played and slavery played an important role in the region. The Mossi used the local population as slaves to work on as domestic and agricultural workers. Moving forward, as European countries have uh, stirred claims to Africans' territory after the partition of Africa, France established a foothold in the Mossi region. In 1887, Louis Bega, a French explorer, visited Ouagadougou and noted its suitability for a labor reserve. For the french in particular the french noted labor for a cotton cultivation in niger river basin initially the mogo noba wogo which is also the most leader at the time resisted biggest overture to establish the region as a french protectorate france seized the region by force in 1896. at about 1904 the region became a part of the colony haut senegal river although the french officially ended slavery in 1901 Thousands in the Upper Vortage region were, were conscripted into the French military and forced to work in the cotton fields. French labor and tax policies led to an anti tax march in Ouagadougou as of 1908, one of the earliest protests of the colonial rule at the time. Ouagadougou has transformed. It's a beautiful African city and it has a lot of contribution and a transformative locations for those of you who plan to visit. If you are new to our channel, We'll encourage you to subscribe and share our videos to your different network. Wagadugu's population grew to nearly twenty thousand during World War I. Upper Volta became a separate colony in 1919, and the French established Wagadugu as its political capital. Thousands were forced to build uh, infrastructure in Wagadugu. In particular, roads and railroads were constructed during the facilitated cotton trade. As a result of numerous famines and financial difficulties, the French dissolved Upper Volta and transferred its administrative administrations to neighboring Côte d'Ivoire, another French colony in 1932. Following World War II, Upper Volta was re-established as a separate colony and Ouagadougou again became its capital in 1947. During the 1950s, Decolonization favors spread throughout Africa and Upper Volta became independent from France as of August 1960. Important industries with regards to Ouagadougou it is a transformative city. It has some of the international colorations if you consider being one of the African's leading cities in that particular region. Important industries in Ouagadougou includes textile, agriculture, and also acclaimed African Film Festival the Festival Pan-Africain du Cinema et de la Television de Ouagadougou, which is also abbreviated as the FESPACO. Ouagadougou is also home to the University of Ouagadougou and the International Airport. For those of you who have been to this city, It will be considered that it's a city that has its own challenges, but like any other city in the continent, it has also attracted lots of tourists and also international experts moving to this country. There are lots of working people who actually moved to live in different parts across Burkina Faso. However, instabilities and unrest marked the history of Upper Volta until Captain Thomas Sankara of the Upper Volta Army became president in 1983 and instituted widespread reforms such as literacy initiatives and also gender equality. In addition, Sankara renamed the country Burkina Faso in 1984. When political openings assassinated Sankara in 1987, bless Compare, Sankara's fellow Council National de la Révolution member became president in 1987. So to point out, unrest continued throughout Compare's administration. As he attempted to extend his 27 year of rule. As of October 2014, thousands of uh, protesters gathered in Ouagadougou to demand that Kampari resign the presidency. He resigned as president of Burkina Faso on October 31, 2014. Mike Cafondo was sworn in as transitional president on October or November 17, 2014. If you are new to a Displorer, we will encourage you to subscribe and share our videos to your different network. Have you ever been to Ouagadougou in the past couple of years? If you have traveled to Ouagadougou and have some experience, we would like to know what attracts you. For those of you who live in Ouagadougou, who would like to know the reason why people should visit your city and tell us what are the transformative things that will attract other experts and also African regional people to visit your own city. In this episode, we have put together 7 places that should be visited while you go to Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. If we consider that, sometimes there are pages around the world that list things to do in Ouagadougou, but lots of things are nearly an hour away of the city does not even count as being really close to the Ouagadougou anymore. In this episode also, I've tried to put together a place which are reasonable distances with regards to the city. I love Ouagadougou actually, who would not love this cool name? If you consider that Burkina Faso's deeply values and arts and also many fans from West African culture find plenty of valuable arts and culture related to things to do in Ouagadougou. In this episode today, here are the 7 places for you to visit in Ouagadougou. If you are going to Burkina Faso, we will encourage you to visit uh, the Grand Marche, which is found uh, in Ouagadougou. Also, you can visit the Artisan Market, which is a transformative place. More importantly, you can also see Wagadougou's Cathedral itself, which will amaze your experience while you are there. You can also see the Grand Mosque, Central Mosque, which is um, uh, found in Wagadougou. Something more for you to visit. You can also visit the National Museum, Museum National in Ouagadougou, which pr- provides African arts and also uh, the cultural nature of this amazing African capital. You can also visit the Musical Instrumental Museum, Museum de la Musique in this country. You can visit the Park of Bernberg, Wago. Also, like always, best things to do in Ouagadougou, you could, you could meet locals and also share your own international experience and you get to see Ouagadougou from a close look. Have you ever been to Ouagadougou recently or you plan to visit in the past, in the next couple of months? We will encourage you that Ouagadougou could be a place to see. For those of you who've been there, we would like you to share your different experiences and also If you are planning to share some also like uh, international cultural festivals that you're planning to answer to attend in this country we will so
0: those are one of my this channel that i shared with you the edu explorer that looks at africa i love watching his videos because he promotes the nations that he does and he tries really hard too now We need to get into the whole Burkina Faso and Thomas Sankara, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really important because he was actually assassinated after he completed the job, you know, bringing in gender equality. I repeat, gender equality. He was a feminist. It was completely opposite to what Burkina Faso stood for. So we're going to go to one of another, one of my favorite channels on YouTube, which is Geography Now and take a look at it. And keep in mind, it was in Ouagadougou, I think October 4th, October something, 2019, that Omar signed her divorce papers. And she did it from Burkina Faso, uh, formerly known as Upper Volta, before Strzok's dad and Obama's mom entered the scene.
13: ...time, because as the upload of this video, Burkina Faso is going through a huge transition and find out why in about three, two, one. <music> It's time to learn geography now! Hey everybody, I'm your host, Barbie. So Burkina Faso is one of those African countries you've probably heard of that has a lot of drama going on. However, there's a whole world of underlying fascination and culture awaiting for you once you observe things a little closer. That being said, let's dissect the flag. The flag has two equally sized horizontal bands of red and green with a yellow star resting in the middle. These colors are the Pan-African colors to symbolize the breaking away and unity of post-colonial nations in Africa. Adopted in 1984, the red symbolizes the revolution, even though the guy leading that revolution would eventually get assassinated by another guy leading another revolution, and the green represents the abundance of agricultural and natural resources, which, I'm not trying to be offensive Burkina Faso, but that's kind of not really true, but if you say so. And finally, the yellow star represents the guiding light of the revolution. Alright, that's pretty much it. Moving on. Okay, first of all, Burkina Faso is arguably the country with the world's most interesting sounding names. I mean, you have places like Burum Burum, like a car, and then you have places like Gorom Gorom, like a... Swedish car, coronga, I don't know. There's a place called Rambo, and Bobo Dioulasso. A lot of these names come from tribal words, and the cool thing is that Burkina Faso is actually really good at intermixing its ethnic influences pretty well. In fact, the name Burkina Faso comes from the more word Burkina, meaning honorable people, and Faso, which is the Diula word, meaning fatherland. The usage of different languages in the name symbolizes the unity between the many ethnic groups. It would kind of be like if Canada called itself La Pi Parlamentaire Federal Nation of Canada. Oh, même pas un rêve, il ne avant que ça l'arrive. Sorry, we're getting ahead of ourselves, and we haven't even shown that Earth zoom in motion graphic thing that we always show. Can we do that now? Ah, great, here we go. Okay, Burkina Faso is landlocked, located in West Africa, surrounded by six other countries, and is divided into 13 administrative regions, each with its own governor. The capital is, get this, the name of the capital is Ouagadougou. I just can't. That is just I love it's, it sounds like a dance move. <laughs> A tout le à tout le à Whew. oh yeah, I-, I gotta teach you guys geography or something like that. Burkina Faso's old name actually used to be Upper Volta or French Upper Volta when it was part of the French Empire, named after the three Volta rivers, the black, the red, and the white Voltas, which also would explain the former flag. You might ask, well, if it was called Upper Volta, then where was Lower Volta? Was it Ghana? To be frank, no, there never really was in Lower Volta. However, all three Volta rivers do kind of drain into Lake Volta in Ghana. So I guess in an unofficial sense, Ghana is kind of like the Lower Volta. When it was under the French Empire, Burkina Faso was kind of utilized as like a bridge nation and wasn't really exploited much for its natural resources. The country was pretty much targeted solely for the purpose of giving direct access from the coastal colonies to the desert holdings like Mali and Niger. Yes, people, that's how you pronounce it Niger, not Niger, not Niger, and definitely not that offensive word that I know you're all thinking about and getting all 13 year old Japanese schoolgirl giggly about, Bob Saget. It's pronounced Niger. It's kind of weird. ...weird because 19 provinces in Burkina Faso have like this weird fusion contiguous territory agreement with Mali and Niger under this thing called the Liptako Gorma Authority, which basically administers the resources and power cooperations between the peoples of the entire region of all three countries. It's kind of like, we're all from three different countries, but eh, let's pretend like that doesn't really matter in this one specific region. Deal? Deal. Otherwise, Burkina Faso has quite a few noticeable places that have their own cultural flair. Typically, towns will have their own contrasting architectural style, based off of the tribes that are predominantly inhabiting that area, like the thick red clay houses of Kumi, the elaborately embellished pattern houses of tiabele the spiky mud mosque of Bobo Dioulasso. Otherwise, Ouagadougou has its own taste in modern buildings and offices, but with a dry red clay African ambiance that gives its distinct cultural character. Want to know another thing that gives Burkina Faso its character? Burkina Faso's landscape plays a huge role in how people live and engage with each other on a daily basis. First of all, as a landlocked country, Burkina Faso obviously has no access to the sea, so instead relies on its system of rivers and lakes for irrigation. Remember how we talked about the Sahel in the Benin video? Well, the northern part of Burkina Faso is kind of like entirely in it. This means that the northern region of Burkina Faso, appropriately named the Sahel region, is the driest part in the entire country and has a desert-like atmosphere. The further south you go, the greener and wetter it gets until you are literally in humid forest. Zones. In general though, one thing that you can kind of expect in Burkina Faso is a lot of red dirt. The soil in many parts has a noticeably dusty red hue that kind of gives the entire country a rustic African appeal. Unfortunately, as a whole, Burkina Faso doesn't really have many internal natural resources, there's no oil, and many of the cash crops aren't really extensively grown. Despite the fragile soil conditions, about 80% of the population lives on subsistence agriculture. In fact, despite plagues of locusts, desertification, and drought, about three-quarters of the people still live in the countryside and prefer agricultural lifestyles. It's just a thing they do and have been doing for centuries. The French colonial administrator R. la Vignette wrote in 1946 that we came from industrialized Europe where factories are joyless affairs and found people who work to music. Typically drummers still accompany farmers in Burkina Faso to this very day. The most common crops distributed domestically and internationally are peanuts, millet, sorghum. However the economy is heavily centralized around cotton and gold. burkinabi cotton is some of the cheapest cotton you can buy on the market right now and comes in very good quality. Gold found in various markets scattered throughout the country respectively make up an almost equal share of an export sector and together collectively gold and cotton alone make up about 70% of all exports. Nonetheless Burkina Faso still has a few impressive geological tricks up its sleeve. One of the most recognizable natural landmarks of this country would be the Sindhu Peaks near Banafora. These curiously eroded rock formations dispersed among the terrain give a wonderful visual experience almost on par with the Hunan province rock pillars in China. But adjacent to the falls is another strangely eroded rock formation with stone ledges carved in an almost ovular fashion. Now Burkina Faso's land may be on the brink of surviving, but the people sure know how to look good in the process. Okay, just in case if you didn't get it from the beginning, the people of Burkina Faso are called Burkinabes. Got it? Good. Burkina Faso has about 17.5 million people. The ethnic majority, at about half of the entire population, identify as Mosi from the Mosi tribe. About 10% are Fulani, Lobis, Mandes, and Bobos. Each make up about 7% of the population each, and the rest of the population is comprised of about 60 different tribes and people groups. Faith-wise, somewhere around 60% of the country follows Malachite Sunni Islam, heavily influenced on the doctrines of Sufism, whereas about 30% of the country as Christian, the remainder typically follows some form of animism and traditional beliefs. The country's official language is French, however there are three regional languages that exist. More, mostly spoken by the Mosi, Mandinka, mostly spoken in the west by the Bobo, and Bambara, mostly spoken in the north close to Mali. Although Furfude, the language of the Fulani, is also widely spoken, it doesn't really encompass any specific region as they're kind of widely spread out throughout the country, so they don't really get a regional recognition. Now here's the thing, Burkina Faso is a pretty low-income country. Most of the people live off of one dollar a day. Day, and the country depends heavily off of aid from the IMF and World Bank. It's also one of the countries with the highest birth rates, as women typically on average have about six children each, which in return has exploded the population almost five-fold in the past half century. Now, in order to understand Burkina Faso, you have to kind of understand what has happened to it and what is happening to it today. In the shortest condensed way I can put this, shortly after the French left and they gained independence in 1960, the country got a president who was later usurped by a revolution led by Thomas Sankara, who acted on Marxist ideologies, often referred to as the Che there of Africa. Sankara was then assassinated by another guy named Blaise Compaore. Eventually he was taken over by the storming of the Parliament by youth revolts. Compaore resigned and fled the country and the ruins of Parliament are now a tourist attraction. After two weeks of intense negotiations with political and military leaders, the country elected retired diplomat Michel Kafando to act as an interim president until November 2015 when elections will determine a new leader. So as we speak right now Burkina Faso is in a state of legislative limbo. In a few months we'll find out what Burkina Faso will decide and what direction they'll head into. As we mentioned before, there are many tribes in Burkina Faso, however the largest one, the Mossi tribe, has historically been the predominant ethnic group in the region. Mossi's, like other tribes found in the region, have a heavily equestrian culture, as they are sometimes referred to as the Cowboys of Africa, which may explain the huge profusion of horse race betting shops found in the country. French horse races are broadcasted live and Burkinabes love betting on them. This gave them a huge advantage over their southern neighbors, as they were even able to effectively fight off the Atlantic slave traders very well in the early 16th century, and remained intact for over 400 years until finally the kingdom was taken over by the French at the end of the 19th century. The cool thing is, according to Mossi tradition, the highest position in Mossi society is the Emperor. The Emperor, referred to as the Mogul Naba, and the current one being Zomwogbo. He is recognized as an authoritative figure and holds substantial power and influence in the country to this day. These days, rugby is actually a little more popular than soccer, especially since Fugence ou was drafted into Montpellier-Erault-RC rugby team. He's kind of like a local hero and since then, Burkinabis have swapped kicking for tackling. (laughs) Sounds like every roommate situation I've been in. Now let's find out who else Burkina Faso likes to kick, tackle, or hug. When it comes to friends, Burkina Faso is kind of like That being said, Burkina Faso does kind of get along with, or at least tolerates, all of their immediate neighbors and have multilateral agreements, but they aren't exactly yippy skippy about all of them either. Historically, they have had kind of a lot of conflicts with almost every single one of them. Nonetheless, it's kind of interesting because Burkina Faso does have kind of okay relations with the EU, even though former president Compaore has been heavily criticized over the decades, and yet chooses to acknowledge underdog areas like Kosovo and Taiwan effectively cutting off ties with the People's Republic of China and Serbia. Libya is a huge ally. Both Sankara and Compaoré were both close friends of Gaddafi and eventually both countries became founding members of the Community of Sahel-Sahara States, an organization that aims to establish free trade in the area. Interestingly enough, Algeria is actually not part of that club and it all had to do with some kind of political dispute yada yada yada. When it comes to their best friends, however, more or less they might begrudgingly say the Ivory Coast and Ghana. Even though they've had some drama with the Ivory Coast during the recent Civil War, as they were accused of supporting rebel fighters, they still remained the largest trade partners and were at one point the same country under French rule. Ghana has established numerous ties with Burkina Faso, and today they have regular high level consultations and cooperation commissions, and they even share joint military exercises with each other to encourage diplomacy. In conclusion, Burkina Faso is a land ridden with kings, cowboys, and cotton and conflict, and right now they're in a very tense moment of transition. Burkina Faso And that's kind of where the camera ran out of memory space. Sorry. Burundi is coming up next.
0: So that was interesting. Learning a little bit about the culture and you know, how, who, what, when, the flag colors, everything, but there's another channel that I like too, which is knowledge of the world. It's actually new and it's pretty much robotic, I would say. But the information is great, and it only has 24 subscribers, like I don't understand how some channels, I think this is like a revamp, but here we go.
16: Niger to the east, Benin to the south, Togo and Ghana to the southwest, and the Ivory Coast to the west. Hey, how are you doing today? I hope everything is going well for you. Welcome to my channel, Knowledge of World. Burkina Faso was formed in 1958 as the Republic of Upper Volta. It gained independence from France in 1960. The country's name was changed to Burkina Faso in 1984. Burkina Faso is a multi-ethnic country with a rich culture. The majority of the population is Muslim, but there are also significant Christian and animist minorities. The official language is French, but there are over 60 other languages spoken in the country. Some of the most popular landmarks and attractions in Burkina Faso include, the Rock of Bandiagara, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the Dogon Villages of the Bandiagara Escarpment, the capital city of Ouagadougou, the Arli National Park, the Nazinga Nature Reserve. The capital of Burkina Faso is Ouagadougou. It is the largest city in the country, with a population of over 2 million people. Ouagadougou is located in the central part of the country, on a plateau at an altitude of about 1,200 meters 3, feet. The city is known for its traditional architecture, including the Grand Mosque and the Palace of the Mogo Naba. The traditional Dugu is a major commercial center for Burkina Faso. The city is home to a number of markets, including the Grand Marque, the largest market in the country. Ouagadougou is also a transportation hub, with a national airport and a railway station. Ouagadougou is a popular tourist destination, with a number of attractions, including the National Museum, the Zoo, and the Cultural Center. The city is also home to a number of festivals, including the Fespaco Film Festival, the largest film festival in Africa. The people of Burkina Faso are known for their hospitality and resilience. The majority of the population is rural, and the country is home to a number of ethnic groups, including the Mossi, the Bobo, the Falani, and the Dogon. Burkina Faso is a relatively safe country, but there have been some recent incidents of violence in the north of the country. The political situation is also somewhat unstable, but the government is working to improve security and stability. The majority of the population of Burkina Faso is Muslim, 60%, followed by Christians, 25%, and animists, 15%. The economy of Burkina Faso is largely based on agriculture. The country is a major producer of cotton, peanuts, and shea nuts. The economy has been growing in recent years, but it is still one of the poorest countries in the world. The currency of Burkina Faso is the West African CFA franc (XOF). The CFA franc is pegged to the euro, so 100 CFA francs is equal to 0.152449 euros. The CFA franc is divided into 100 centimes. The CFA Franc was introduced in 1945 by the French colonial government. It was originally called the French West African Franc, but the name was changed to the West African CFA Franc in 1958. The CFA Franc is used by eight countries in West Africa, Benin, Burkina Faso, Côte d'Ivoire, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Niger, Senegal, and Togo. The CFA Franc is a stable currency, and it is widely accepted in West Africa. It is also a good currency for travelers, as it is easy to exchange for other currencies. Here are some of the benefits of using the CFA Franc, it is a stable currency, which means that its value does not fluctuate as much as other currencies. It is widely accepted in West Africa, so you do not have to worry about exchanging your currency when you travel. It is a good currency for travelers, as it is easy to exchange for other currencies. Citizens of most countries need a visa to enter Burkina Faso. Visas can be obtained from the Burkina Faso Embassy or consulate in your home country. One secret about Burkina Faso is that it is home to the world's largest film festival dedicated to African films. The Fespaco Festival is held every two years in Ouagadougou and attracts filmmakers from all over Africa. The food of Burkina Faso is a delicious blend of African and French cuisine. Some of the most popular dishes include tu, a millet based porridge, wari, a sorghum based stew, and soup canja, a peanut soup. The official language of Burkina Faso is French. However, there are over 60 other languages spoken in the country, including more, dayila, and fulfulda. The use of technology in Burkina Faso is growing rapidly. The country has a growing number of internet users, and mobile phones are becoming increasingly popular. The political situation in Burkina Faso is somewhat unstable. The country has experienced a number of coups and political upheavals in recent years. However, the current government is working to improve stability and democracy. These are only a few broad facts about the world and its countries. There is much more to learn about the world and its people. To know everyone that follows us and stays with us, since we need everyone.
0: So, now that we're using AI a lot, we're going to be getting a lot of AI videos. That was actually the most thorough one in regards to facts. Why is this important? If you notice, this video also showcased that there is a more centralized currency for West African nation. That's pretty weird considering they don't have an economic trade agreement like the EU, yet for some reason France was able to deploy an experiment on having African nations that aren't part of a very specific commerce agreement to share common currency. That's key here. That is key here. Now, <laughs> It's an interesting nation, aside from the fact that the CIA created it and installed the leader they wanted, helped with the assassinations, and got it done. It is one nation that is constantly in turmoil uh, based on religious beliefs. We have the slaughter of Christians and vice versa, and it's a constant battle. Now, here's something interesting about the tribes that are there, and we'll end with that. 31.
12: French anthropologist Marcel Griul treks through the Forbidding Desert in search of the mysterious Dogon tribe. When he finds them, he becomes fascinated by their culture and traditions. As Griul starts collecting Dogon legends, he notices an eerie similarity to ancient tales found across the globe. Tales of amphibious gods, in this case called Nomo, who came from the sky lived in the sea and helped mankind. They described these Nomos as being very like mermaid or merman like but bequeathing lots of knowledge of astronomy, math and science to this ancient race. The Dogon would say
11: that the Nomo were these extraterrestrial gods but they needed
12: a watery environment to live in though they could come on land. Griul learns that their arrival is known as the Day of the Fish.
11: The Dogon actually said, well, this was our creator god, Namo, who descended from the sky in a loud whirlwind of
12: a storm of thunder, smoke, and lightning. But what struck Griul and shocked the world weren't the Dogon legends themselves, but where they said their amphibious gods came from a star that no one on Earth knew existed until 1862, long after the Dogon claimed they knew of its existence.
11: In the 1930s, when French anthropologists were first discussing the Nomo with these Dogon priests, the Dogon priests said that the Nomo were coming from the star system of Sirius. Well, the French
12: anthropologists were amazed at that and were confused as well. According to the Dogon, their gods didn't come from Sirius A, a star that is clearly visible in the evening sky, but from its tiny companion, a dying star called Sirius B, that can only be seen with advanced high-powered telescopes. Sirius A is the brightest
11: star in the sky because it is very luminous, and it is also fairly close to the Earth. In astronomy, it is a known fact that there is a Sirius A and a Sirius B. Sirius A can be seen, and Sirius B, for us, is invisible because it's just too small. Now, the Dogon knew about the invisible companion star to Sirius.
12: How did they know? For thousands of years, Sirius A has played an outsized role in the imagination of Greeks, Persians, Hindus, Romans, Polynesians, and countless others. The Egyptians even based their calendar on Sirius A. And some believe they aligned the Giza pyramids to Orion's belt, which points to Sirius A.
4: Villages along the Nile and along the Euphrates and ancient Mesopotamia. They lined up their village dwellings to mimic the constellation in which Sirius sat. Sirius is one of the closest stars to us. It's 8.6 light years away. Unlike the sun, which has a beautiful golden color, Sirius is a bluish white color, indicating it's much hotter than the surface of the sun. And that corresponds to it being more massive than the sun and burning hotter. It'll have a shorter lifespan.
12: But how could the Dogon have known about the existence of Sirius B? Could they have at one time been in possession of advanced technology? Or could there be another, even more profound explanation? The Dogon had
4: an amazing degree of knowledge about the Sirius system. They knew that the orbits of the two stars were about 50 years period, and that the invisible star was very dense and past its prime. They also knew that the brighter one was a larger star than the sun.
12: The Dogon also knew that Sirius B is about the size of Earth and spins on its axis.
2: There is no logical explanation for why the Dogon tribe knew about the Sirius star system naturally. We didn't have telescopes in those days. How did they know this? It's as if an ET came here and just told them all about that. It's an amazing story.
4: One theory is maybe the aliens gave them this knowledge. It can't
11: be
12: ruled out. That's one possibility because they got it right on the dot. But if a race of amphibious Nomo came from Sirius B and gave the Dogon such gifts of knowledge, did they only visit this one desert tribe? Or did they visit other peoples in
11: other lands? It would be one thing if there’s only one legend of a fishman worldwide. But the Namo is one story of dozens of amphibious bringers of knowledge to our ancestors. The ancient Hindus talk about this. The ancient Greeks, they all had these fish people that during the day taught mankind and then at night they wandered back into the ocean to just emerge the next day.
0: Now is going to play a little bit more of it, but I think it's unnecessary at this time. Today's a Tuesday. We're going to have them riding as fast as possible. Key takeaways are What does the Carly Russell case have to do with the Obama drowning and which one is overshadowing and why? We'll see a lot more coming into focus by the end of July because as I said, this is a very, very, very strange July considering the counter narratives that we are seeing that are the most bizarre. You know, I know a lot of people are waiting for Jack Smith, but you know the people are saying how horrible he has been and what trouble he's gotten into oh shoot before i forget actually my apologies that i have to extend this for just a couple minutes but i wanted to show how obama's mom did what she did here we go i found it i i thought i had lost it but you know what's interesting this was just put out 3 weeks ago and it's almost like we know what's coming thomas sankara the one that actually changed the name of the country of burkina faso here's some key points
17: with the first intake of 1966 sankara entered the military academy of kadiogo in wagadougou at the age of just 17. while there he witnessed the first military coup d'etat in upper volta led by lieutenant colonel Sangoulamizana lamizana on the 3rd of january 1966. While still in the academy, civilian professors were deployed to teach the training officers on social sciences. In a certain way, Thomas Sankara was shaped by Adama Torre, the academic director at that time. Torre taught history and geography and was known to have progressive ideas, even though he never publicly shared them. He invited a few of his brightest and more politically inclined students, among them Thomas Sankara to join informal discussions about imperialism, neocolonialism, socialism and communism, the Soviet and Chinese revolutions, the liberation movements in Africa, and similar topics outside of the classroom. This became the first time Thomas Sankara would be systematically exposed to a revolutionary idea on his country, Upper Volta, and the entire world. Aside from his academic and extracurricular political activities, Sankara also pursued his passion for music and played the guitar. After completing basic military story, in 1981, Sankara was appointed Minister of Information during the military government of Saezzebo. He excelled in this position and differentiated himself from the rest. Of the government officials in many ways, including biking to work every day instead of driving in a car. Also, while his predecessors would guard the media and censor journalists and newspapers, Sankara encouraged investigative journalism and allowed media freedom.
0: This is key. He was the one that Peter Strzok Sr. and Stanley Ann were working he was the one planting stories he was your information officer and he was appointed i want you guys to pay attention so he was encouraging investigative journalism to create discord and youth revolts pay attention
17: this led to publication of government scandals by both private and state-owned newspapers on the 12th of april 1982 and in opposition to what he saw as an anti-labor drift by the regime, Sankara resigned his position as minister and declared misfortune to those who guard the people. After a successful military coup of 7 November 1982 brought Major Dr. Jean Baptiste Sudrago to power, Sankara became prime minister in January 1983. Unfortunately, he was dismissed few months later, on May 17, 1983. Within those four months, Sankara was believed to have pushed Drago's regime for more progressive reforms in Upper Volta. Sankara would then be arrested after the French President's African Affairs advisor Guy Payne visits Colonel Uriam Somme later that year. Henry Zongo and Jean-Baptiste Bukhari Lingani were also placed under arrest. The decision of the government to arrest Thomas Sankara proved to be a very unpopular one among the young officers in the military regime, and his imprisonment created enough momentum for his friend Blaise Compaoré to lead another coup. A military coup d'état organized by his compatriot Blaise Compaoré brought Sankara to power on August 4, 1983. He was just 33 years old at the time. Sankara. Who was inspired by the likes of Fidel Castro of Cuba and Che Guevara, as well as John Jerry Lawrence of Ghana, saw himself as a revolutionary figure. As president, he promoted the Democratic and Popular Revolution. RDP. In a speech delivered on 2nd of October 1983, Sankara described the ideology of the revolution as anti-imperialist and his policies were geared towards fighting corruption and promoting reforestation. On the first anniversary of his ascension into power on 4th of August 1984, he renamed the country Burkina Faso, meaning the land of upright people. He also gave it a new flag and wrote a new national anthem. Sankara's first priorities after taking office were feeding, housing, and giving medical care to his people in an attempt to eradicate polio meningitis and measles he launched a mass vaccination program that was very successful From
0: so here is where the bush family enters um and the IMF and the UN here's where the first deployments of vaccines were done thomas and kara got a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies these are coups that were led by the west and this is how they transformed one nation into another here's where you can start seeing that implementation
17: 1983 to 1985 2 million burkina were vaccinated prior to sankara's presidency infant mortality in burkina faso was as high as about 20.8 percent but this number would fall drastically to about 14.5% during his presidency. Sankara's administration was also the first African government to publicly recognize the HIV-AIDS epidemic as a major threat to Africa. He undertook large-scale housing and infrastructure projects as well. Brick factories were created in order to help in building houses as an effort to end urban slums. In an effort to fight deforestation, people's harvest of forest nurseries was created to supply village nurseries as well as organizing the planting of millions of trees. Sankara also carried out a vast road and rail building project, and in a short while, all regions of the country were connected. Over 700 kilometers of rail was laid to facilitate manganese extraction in the Battle of the Rails without any foreign aid. These programs were an attempt to prove that African countries could be prosperous without foreign aid. Sankara also launched education programs to help in fighting the country's 90% illiteracy rate at the time. These programs were successful in the beginning, but shortly after the assassination of Thomas Sankara, wild-scale teacher strikes coupled with the new regime's unwillingness to negotiate led to the creation of revolutionary teachers. In an attempt to replace the nearly 2,500 teachers that were fired over a strike in 1996, anyone with a college degree was invited to teach through the revolutionary teachers program. Volunteers mainly received 10-day training course before beginning to teach. But under Sankara's presidency, the literacy rate went from 13% in 1983 to 73% in 1987. Shortly after taking power, Tomo Sankara established a system of courts known as the Popular Revolutionary Tribunals. The courts were originally created to try former government officials in such a manner that the average Burkinabe would participate or oversee the trial of the enemies of the revolution. to a tried for corruption, Sankara also fought tirelessly for women's rights and to improve women's social status in Burkina Faso. He was considered by many as a feminist. He declared in a speech, there is no true social revolution without the liberation of women. His government banned female genital mutilation, forced marriages, and polygamy, while appointing women to high government positions. It has also been established that Sankara was the first African leader to appoint women to major cabinet positions and to recruit them actively in the military as part of his foreign relation thomas sankara defined his government programs as anti-imperialist as a charismatic pan-africanist he was an outspoken opponent of foreign aid his belief was that he who feeds you controls you he spoke out against what he called neocolonialist penetration of africa through western trade and finance in conferences such as the organization of african unity He urged on African nations to get together to repudiate their foreign debt. In the late 1980s, when ecological awareness was still very low, Thomas Sankara was one of a few African leaders to consider environmental protection a priority. Over the space of 15 months, starting from October 1984, Sankara's government planted about 10 million trees in a campaign of reforestation. Sankara Wu explained, quote, In Burkina, wood is our only source of energy. We have to constantly remind every individual of his duty to maintain and regenerate nature. Despite the great strides that were made, there was a growing dissent in the country, partly because of economic problems and opposition from traditional quarters to some of Sankara's more progressive social policies. His administration gradually lost popular support and internal conflict within his government grew as well. Particularly, the summary trial and execution of seven individuals associated with the previous government and accused of treason in 1984 and the dismissal of teachers as a result of strikes in the same year would tend to undermine his government's great strides. On October 15, 1987, Sankara was assassinated in the coup led by his compatriot Blaise Compaore and two others. Compaore went on to rule Burkina Faso for 27 years until a popular unrest led to his resignation in 2014. On October 15, 1987, Sankara and 12 other officials were assassinated by an armed gang in a coup staged by his compatriot Blaise Compaore. Kampuare will explain that Sankara has damaged relations with former colonial powers France and neighboring Ivory Coast and accused his S.Y. colleague of conspiring to murder opponents. After the coup and the death of Thomas Sankara, some CDR members loyal to Sankara mounted armed resistance for these before they were overwhelmed. According to Aluna Traore, the only survivor of the assassination Sankara was shot as he stepped out of the door with his two hands raised. He was having a meeting with members of his cabinet at the Council attended. After killing Sankara, twelve other members of his cabinet were also shot and killed by these assassins. Sankara and other dead bodies were hurriedly buried in unmarked graves. Decades later, after the fall of Blaise Compaoré. 14 people were finally charged in connection with Sankara's murder, including Blaise Kampauri, in 2021. Kampauri, who has been in exile in Côte d'Ivoire since 2014 along with former security chief Hisen Scafando, will be tried in absentia. On October 11, 2021, the long-awaited trial began in Ouagadougou. When the verdict was announced on April 6, 2022, Kampaori and nine others were found guilty of having been complicit in Sankara's murder, while Hyacinth Kafando was found guilty of the murder. Kampaori, Kafando, and another defendant, General Gilbert Diendere, were sentenced to life in prison while eight other defendants received lesser sentences, while three of the defendants were acquitted. But what really happened on the day Sankara was assassinated? Go watch this video here next for a full account of this last. The question we should be asking ourselves is why
0: right before the trial, the U.S. had a lot of interest in that. The more you know. Now, let's end today with a little bit of fire because it's going to be a pretty crazy 48 hours. God bless everyone. And tomorrow I will have a late show because I have things to tend to in the morning. God bless.
17: That you know. It doesn't matter if the world is going mad If we just hold on, if we just hold on, yeah Sing it louder just to let the world know
14: No, we're not nameless, we're not faceless We will born for greatness No, we're not nameless, we're not faceless we were